Hi, self-lovers. Before we get to today's episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision is scary in and of itself, and it could also lead to the loss of other human rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. Remember that any small thing you can do helps. Any dollar you can donate, every conversation you have with somebody about the importance of abortion, any moment you can spare to call your local representatives and demand that they take action, when you go out and vote, all of those small things add up and they will help. We will fight this. We are fighting this. And if you need more resources for abortion advocacy, go to podvoices.help. I also want to remind you that episode number 122 that I recorded right after this Supreme Court decision is all about self-love during a time of crisis, when you feel like the world is falling apart, when it just all feels heavy. I really encourage you to take extra good care of yourself, and episode 122, it's called Your Self-Love Survival Guide, will hopefully help you do that. I love you. Hang in there. We got this. Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate, and this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hey, self-lovers. Today, we have a very timely conversation with our guest, Erica Smith, who is a sexuality educator. She's here to talk to us about abortion, purity culture, and how to talk to people in your life about sex, including your romantic partners. Erica Smith, she, her, is an award-winning sexuality educator and consultant with over 20 years of experience. She has provided comprehensive sex education and advocacy to young women and LGBTQ plus youth in Philadelphia's juvenile justice system. She's worked in abortion care and supported HIV plus and transgender adolescents and their families. She received her master's of education from Widener University Center for Human Sexuality Studies. In 2019, she developed the Purity Culture Dropout Program to help people learn all of the sex education that they missed growing up in purity culture. Sex ed that is accurate, queer-inclusive, trauma-informed, compassionate and comprehensive. And you can really hear the compassionate part in her voice. I mean, I told her in the conversation that her voice just feels like a big hug or somebody just holding your hand through all the nuances and strangeness of sex that unfortunately I feel like I personally didn't receive enough conversations about. And I'm just now starting to unpack a lot of this stuff and healing my inner child vicariously through also being a big sister to my 14-year-old little sister. Erica lives in Philadelphia with her partner and house full of rescue animals. You can find her on Instagram at at ericasmith.sex.ed. I've also linked her Instagram and website and Purity Culture Dropout program in the description. If you want to find her on Instagram, I highly recommend clicking the link in the description because it seems like her account gets shadow banned quite often due to the content that she shares. So make sure you find her using the direct link. In this interview, you will learn why sexual education is so important, how to talk to young people about sex, how to talk to people in your life who might not understand the severity of the abortion issue, specifically your partner, specifically your cisgender male partners who just 
don't get it. And she talks a lot about what purity culture is and how deeply it affects us as kids, teens, and adults. So remember that your pleasure is important. Knowing about your body and how it works is important. Reproductive care and rights and sexual education is incredibly important. I hope you enjoy this very educational conversation with Erica Smith. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for being here during such a pivotal moment in history. I am happy to be here and be having these conversations with people. So thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, I wanted to know how you're personally processing the overturn of Roe v. Wade and also how the sexuality educator, sex ed part of you is processing as somebody who's a leader in this space. So I I want to know both sides. That's so sweet of you to ask about the personal part. I will share that the day of the overturning, which was a Friday, when I heard the news, I was actually in the middle of doing a training for a bunch of high school-aged camp counselors. And I was training them about like gender diversity that they might see in the youth population at their camp. And in the middle of the day or the middle of that training, I got a text from my husband and it just said like it happened. And I knew that it was coming in the next few days, but that still just like took the wind out of me. And I survived that weekend, I think on adrenaline. I definitely attended a big rally in Center City, Philadelphia, where I live. And I felt like very pumped up about it. And then a few days after, that's when it really hit me. And where I struggled with like the intersection of me just as a human and a sex educator is feeling like I need to say something because I know people rely on me for information. And I know that I'm occupying a role as a leader in this sex education space. But at the same time, I am so personally devastated that I was like, I don't have it in me right now to do anything helpful, I felt. So I did give it a few days before I got on my Instagram page and really like started making some educational posts. So dealing with it personally has been, you know, how grief is, you know, anyone who's lost someone here knows that there are times that you totally forget about the thing that you're grieving and that it hits you. And so, I mean, I have a lot of joy in my life and then I will remember like, oh, right, but Roe was overturned. And for me personally, as a human, I have to intentionally spend time offline, not scrolling and scrolling and giving myself that like, you know, 24 seven feed of doom and gloom. I have to really intentionally stop looking at that sometimes to take care of myself. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's really hard balancing your own mental health and the work that people expect of you during a time like this. And I try to do the put my own seatbelt on first, put my own oxygen mask on first. And that's basically how I've been operating. Yeah, I really relate to that. Of course, to a lesser extent than you, because I'm not a sex educator, but I did feel like people were waiting or wanted to hear my opinion. And I think a lot of people were looking toward each other to figure out how to react. 
And it is grief, you're right. And it's especially hard when you're feeling joy and then you catch yourself and feel like you're almost not supposed to be feeling joy. So that's been really real. Did you mention you were teaching a youth program? I get hired to do trainings often, and a lot of that involves LGBTQ youth issues. And so I was doing a training for a Jewish day camp about gender diversity in youth. So I was with a bunch of young people. Yeah. That's amazing. And I'm wondering if they knew what had happened. And if so, how did you talk to them about it? And if not, how do you recommend people talk to the youth in their life about what's going on? Because these days you can't really just brush it under the rug, especially with social media. And my little sister is 14 and very involved in everything political because they don't have another option. It feels like, how do you recommend people talk to the young people in their lives about what had happened? That's a great question. And I did not really have the opportunity to speak to the youth on that particular day about it. I talked to a couple of them and they were older teenagers that we spoke privately after the training and they were all very politically aware and had pretty progressive politics and were feeling similarly. As far as having conversations with young people in your life, I was asked this a few days ago, and there are already some really wonderful articles that have been written about how to talk to children about this verdict. And of course, everything you share has to be developmentally appropriate. So if you're, you know, talking to a eight-year-old who maybe doesn't understand or doesn't have the capacity to talk about like nuanced concepts of adult sexuality. You would provide like just as much information as they need to know. But if you are talking to a teenager and 14 is definitely old enough to have some nuanced conversations about sexuality and sexual health, I think it's important to listen to what young people are saying and telling you and hear their fears and be able to answer their questions. And Even as adults admit that we don't know what's going to happen, but we are going to try our best to make sure that people who have needs will get access and that we're all kind of teaming up together on this. So I can't imagine what it's like to be a young person in the world right now in 2022. And I think that a lot of our roles as adults is just like, showing the young people that we do care and that we are here to listen to them and to to guide them. Yeah. I saw a video of a teenager getting arrested. I think in the caption, they mentioned that she was like 14 or 15. So exactly my sister's age, like high school. And she was getting arrested at a protest and her mom just kept shouting, I'm right here. I'm right behind you. Don't resist. I'm here with you. And it was so beautiful and sad to watch. That just got me teary-eyed. Yeah. And all the comments were, you know, of course, a mix of emotions, but especially praising the mother and how she, from a distance, was verbally reassuring her child while following the police officers. And she couldn't go into the car with them, but she just kept yelling for as long as she could that she's right there, she's right behind her, and she'll do everything she can. Wow. Yeah. That's so powerful. Right. And sometimes I'm like, I feel so bad for the youth getting exposed to this. But I also, in watching certain 
more positive videos and almost healing like my inner child and by watching like the modeling of parenting or just role modeling in general that I wished I would have received at that age, even seeing something like that, like somebody's parent stand behind them. I think that was, that was really powerful in many ways. That's incredible. One thing I was wondering, this is such a personal selfish question, but one thing I've noticed with my sister being a teenager, and sometimes I'm hesitant to talk to her about certain things, not as much anymore. The past six months have been a big shift, but in just like as she was developing coming of age, sometimes I thought like, oh, she's too young to hear about this. And then learning the hard way that actually (laughs) she's not, and she's heard way worse and, you know, peers talk amongst themselves and deal with things. And one of my philosophies, I'm not her parent, but it's wild that I think about this. One of my philosophies with just children is like, you almost have to kind of get ahead of them, like teach them things before somebody else puts something toxic in their head. I'm wondering, like, what do you think of that? I will give the caveat that I am not a parent myself, but I have worked with adolescents for 20 years now. And teenagers in particular are my favorite population to work with. I love that you say that. Yes. I love teenagers. I mean, they get a bad rap. And of course, I don't know what it's like to have one in my house 24-7. So <laughs> I can say, I mean, maybe it's it's as terrible as everyone says. But I think it's such a profoundly fascinating and difficult age. And they're like still kids that need to be protected, but they also are many adults that understand so much about the world. But your philosophy of getting ahead of something before they learn the wrong thing is 100% in line with at least parenting experts in the field of sexuality. And one great example of that is the issue of pornography. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I'm in my early 40s. And so the internet was not a thing when I was growing up. It was like, if we were going to have exposure to pornography, we had to like find someone's magazine or like someone's dad's VHS tapes. It was not as easily accessed as it is now. And we have realized that it's likely that most children will see something pornographic by age 10. And that's not even because they're looking. It's just because of smartphones and video games and YouTube and things that come up. So the expert advice in this area is have conversations with young people before they see that stuff. And so I know some parents are like, well, I can't imagine talking to a kid about porn until they're at least in their teens. But truly, the best practice is to have a conversation with them before they even see it so that they will not be shocked or not know what to do, but rather say to them, Hey, you know, when you're using your device, chances are you might see something that's only meant for adults. So if you ever see something and then, you know, give a little description like people who are naked or people who are doing something confusing to you, please tell me you're not in trouble. You didn't do anything wrong, but what you're seeing is not for kids. And I would like to know if you've come across it and then we can talk about it. So yeah, you are, you are right on. Mm-hmm. Thank you for giving that script. I was just about to ask for that. I think a lot of my listeners aren't all parents, but have young people in their lives, like siblings and nieces and nephews. And it's wild what comes up when you spend just a little bit of time with kids. What was your personal 
like journey toward becoming a sex educator and working with LGBTQ plus youth in particular and just the work that you do now, was there any personal unfolding? Yeah, that is a great question. I always think about it and kind of uncover new avenues to my story when I tell it. So I grew up in a family that was not shameful about sexuality. I did not have overly religious family. We did not shy away from topics of sexuality. And, you know, my mom is one of five sisters and she and her sisters were always, you know, making jokes and talking openly about sex and bodies and periods. And so I grew up with the topic pretty normalized. And I found that when I was in high school, I became the go-to friend for like asking questions about sex, talking about sex. I was very interested in the I don't know, practical aspects of it. I would read books in the library. And before I had sex as a teenager, I went to the clinic and got on birth control, like before I even had sex for the first time. So it's always just been this thing that I felt, I don't know, very responsible about and very knowledgeable about. And then when I was in college, I was a women's studies major. And I found that the classes that I liked the most were women's studies health classes. And I found that the topic of sexuality, especially as it related to discrimination, misogyny, racism, there were so much fascinating things that I learned, like about how birth control was tested on like women of color without their consent and just things that, you know, were just fascinating to me and also really upsetting. So I realized then that whatever I focused on, I wanted it to be related to sexuality. And that led me to working in the sexual health field, having a few jobs in clinics. And I didn't set out to work with youth in particular. It's just that I was looking for a job at one point, and the job that I got was at the Children's Hospital and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And it was working with youth around HIV prevention. I was basically a youth myself when I got that job. I was only 23. And medically, we consider adolescence to end in the early 20s. So I was a young person working with young people. And that's basically what I've been doing ever since. That must have made you so relatable, though. I know. And and it's funny because I stayed in that job for a long time. And I could tell when when I wasn't relatable anymore and when I became like the cool older sister and I started to be sometimes in some cases older than the mothers of the young people I was working with, I would have like a, you know, a 15 year old kid that was working with me and they tell me that their mom was only 31. At that point, I'm like 38. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess your job is to fill in the gaps that the moms and the parents didn't have the education to do. And wait, I said that so convoluted, but I feel like it's it's hard to teach kids about sex education when you yourself didn't get proper sex education. One thing that's so present, like literally as of last night, I am addicted to the show Sex Education on Netflix. Did you watch that? I didn't. And I will tell you why. It's because my work, I like to compartmentalize it. So when I have like free time and I'm watching television, I watch shows that have nothing to do with any of my professional stuff. So 
I will watch shows about like motorcycle gangs and supernatural stuff, but I, <laughs> I avoided sex education. I, I've heard wonderful things about it though. Yeah, I totally get that. It's a wonderful show. And one thing it's been bringing up for me is just like healing my inner child, like all the things that I should have heard at that age. It's them navigating it and they do it in such a healthy way. Like they openly discuss these things that you would never even think. I mean, truth be told, me and my boyfriend, especially my boyfriend, he's sitting there like in complete shock that they're portraying teenagers as talking about these things. And I'm like, well, do you remember yourself? Like, yeah. <laughs> we were definitely doing this. It's just as adults, for some reason, we pretend like we know everything and that our upbringing was the best and everything kids these days are doing, you know, is wrong. And (laughs) yeah. On that note, what led you to, well, I really want to hear about your work in abortion clinics and what your experience was in that and then purity culture and what that is. Yeah. So I will tell you first about working in abortion care. It's something that I did not do for a very long time. It was only a little over a year. And that was at the very beginning of my career after undergraduate. So I graduated from college. And again, I just had a women's studies degree, but I had specialized in women's health and wellness. And I went to work at a clinic that provided abortion care. We did other things. We did like routine gynecological care and STI testing, but we were a provider of abortion care. So I feel like that job was life-changing. It taught me so much that there were times that I was like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to be here when I feel like I'm just learning. I was a counselor, so that meant that I would talk to people coming in for their procedures and give them, in Pennsylvania, we have like mandatory 24-hour waiting periods. So a person has to come in, get a bunch of information about what the procedure is going to be like. And then they come back the next day for it. So I would do those education sessions. And then the day of the procedure, I would talk to them and explain the procedure, make sure they were consenting, that they were there of their own volition, answer any questions they had. And I also often held people's hands through the procedures and talked to them during the abortion. And I mean, I, my life was forever changed by doing that work. And that's one reason why the Roe v. Wade verdict has been so difficult is because it has me thinking of every single person that I saw in that clinic. And I was in several clinics in different parts of Pennsylvania, but I saw everyone from 12-year-old girls to women who thought they had gone through menopause coming in for procedures. We're talking about children and we're talking about grandmothers. There were people who had, you know, condom mishaps, people who had accidents with birth control, people who had been sexually assaulted, people who were like, I have too many kids already. I absolutely cannot have another one. We can't afford it right now. Folks who had experienced incest and victimization and everyone from like university professors to folks that could barely read. I mean, some of the most profoundly memorable people that came in for abortions were religious women who would tell us how religious they are and how this was a different circumstance. And they were against abortion and they would say, just so you know, I don't believe in this. 
before going in for the procedure. So that whole job was just profoundly educational and made me even more fiercely pro-choice than I was before I went in. I wish that that post you made, the the tweet, Twitter, Twitter thread. Wow, I'm so not on Twitter. <laughs> the Twitter thread <laughs> describing all the different types of people that came in. I feel like that needs to be on billboards. But also I feel like a lot of people would be called out. And I just want to read some of the ones that you didn't mention. You wrote, a Catholic who asked us to baptize the fetus. She brought a vial of holy water. A girl who has been her church's hell house, quote, abortion girl. Muslims wearing hijabs. Many who said, I don't believe in this, but dot, dot, dot. 12-year-olds, so many 12-year-olds. You mentioned the woman going through menopause. Someone who used a baggie and rubber band as a condom. Yes. University professors. The daughter of a prominent local family. Engaged women, married women, women who couldn't read, grandmas, college kids, sex workers, many who had kids at home who would talk to you proudly about their kids during the procedure. Seriously? Yep. Yeah. Wow. Almost like in a way like they had something to prove or just both, right? It was more like my job as a hand holder was like distract her. And I'd be like, "How? Are, like, tell me about yourself." And some of them would just be like, "Well, I've got a three-year-old at home," and and I'd be like, "Oh, that's awesome! You know, what's their name and what do they like?" And just really going with what they wanted to tell me. Yeah, I love the contrast of these next two: people who had sex for fun or love, those who were pregnant as a result of assault, people who'd had sex one single time, women who are desperately hiding the pregnancies from violent partners. That's a scary one. Incest survivors those who didn't know who the father was, those who desperately wanted to be pregnant and had to make heartbreaking decisions. And you wrote every type of person. You experienced all this working in an abortion clinic for about a year and a half. I'm so sorry, my voice is breaking because it's... Uh, it's emotional. Yeah, yeah, it is. Honestly, hearing you read this back to me is like, I almost forgot. I mean, I forgot exactly what I wrote and I'm just like, I'm hearing it almost as if I didn't read it and feeling that emotion as well. Yeah. But the big point is that there's no type of person who has an abortion. And I personally have a family member who is very opposed to abortion. And I know for a fact has had one themselves. And that is just so, well, strange. I do not understand the logic, but that's my judgmental self. and. I remind myself that the opposition is coming from an immense amount of personal pain and often brainwashing and fear and a lot of very deep, dark, heavy emotions that also aren't pleasant to experience. So I guess they have to manifest outwardly somehow, unfortunately. Yeah. And I I really always thought that the women who came in and said, I don't believe in this, but it was like they were so unable to step out of their personal experience to be like, other people are just like me. The other people coming in are, are the same. Like they would often act like they were exceptional, you know, like the other women that come in are like sluts and they're bad and they're immoral, but I'm different. I just made a mistake. Yeah. And it was not my job to say anything about that. But in my head, I'd just be like, oh, I wish you could I really wish you could like generalize your experience to others. Yeah. And that's like 
the biggest cognitive bias, right? I forgot what it's what they call it, but it's that exact one where you feel like things that apply to you don't apply to everybody else. Totally. Yep. It's like I tell my therapist every week, I'm perfect. Everyone else is fucked up. <laughs> she doesn't believe me though, right. but we're working on it. <laughs> A few of my followers have reached out to me saying that it's quite hard to be intimate with especially specifically their male partners because there's a sense that they don't understand the severity of the issue, which is causing a disconnect in the relationship. And by being intimate, I don't necessarily just mean sex, but I mean just connecting. What's your advice for people dealing with this? I believe you mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you are married to a male partner. And I'm wondering if there's any advice that you can give either personally or professionally. So interestingly enough, I am married to a male partner, but he is a transgender male partner. And so he deeply understands the idea of other people making decisions about your bodily autonomy. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have the struggle that I think some folks do when they're married to cisgender men who have never really had to think about their rights in that way. But I have been partnered with cisgender men in the past, and I I understand how difficult it can be to, to really make someone else sort of understand your struggle. Cool. That is, that is so hard. One of the big things, of course, is, is communication. Is your partner willing to have a real conversation about how this affects you, all of the things it brings up for you, all of the fears that it stirs up, all of the, you know, trauma responses you may be having. And hopefully, I mean, I think sometimes I've definitely fallen into this. We kind of expect our partners to just know and to just get it. But truly, they can't always know and get things unless we explicitly share them with our partners. So my first advice would be ask him to listen to you and share all of the things that you're going through and feeling. And you really might not be able to make him feel the way you feel. Maybe that's not the goal, but I think it's important to share all of these things with our partners so that they they can try to to meet us where we're at and try to listen and help out and be supportive. Yeah, I really agree with that. A very blunt, kind of harsh statement out of context. But one thing that I've said to mine is you will never understand, but your job as somebody who loves me is to try to. That's beautiful. I think that's true. Yes. That's the only thing that we've landed on that has been helpful for the both of us, honestly. Because we also want kids. And like, truth be told, if I got pregnant now, I would probably keep the baby and would be happy about it. And so it's a weird thing to grapple with. Whereas like, you know, two, three years ago, that might have been a totally different scenario. And so because of that, not only is he far removed from it as a cisgender man, but also as somebody who wants children like yesterday. So it is weird to watch so much of the world's rights get taken away and also feel like it almost it doesn't apply to you. So I'm wondering in that regard, 
as it relates to sex education in your work? Like, how do you communicate with people and not make them see, but I guess for lack of better words, make them see the importance of it and how the things you think don't apply to you really, really do? Yeah. So one of my philosophies as an educator has always been, I'm not trying to make you think the same things that I do or convert your viewpoint, but I'm here to give you information and then give you answers to questions and then you make your own decisions. So I could never tell a young person, you have to do this because I think you should. It's more like, hey, I'm going to tell you all the things I know about sex and STI prevention. And then you have to make the decision for yourself. But I want to make sure that you have all the facts and you feel supported before you take any kind of action. And so the same thing applies here. I think there are definitely people that don't want to hear it, that don't want to listen. And they're not the folks that I spend my energy on. So if there are people who are already like, nope, I am 100% against abortion in all circumstances, you can't change my mind. And there are plenty of folks out there like that. I get that. They're not people that I am going to target with my education. I want to talk to people that have open hearts and who have curiosity. And I think it's also important to share history here that I mean, abortion is something that has been happening since the beginning of people being on this planet and recording human history. People have been ending pregnancies in a variety of ways, mostly through herbal means. In ancient civilizations, there's evidence of that. Before the United States started regulating abortions, which was only in like the mid to late 1800s, it wasn't a government issue at all. It was just a private thing among women. And most often, they were being attended to by midwives. There's so much to know. And I think the history is part of like changing people's perspective on things, like giving people more context about this and educating them about how taking away abortion rights. Also, it doesn't just affect people who are like, well, I don't want to have a kid. It would affect you, for example, if you were pregnant and were carrying a wanted pregnancy, but had some kind of really serious medical complication. And I think knowing that is something that is actually new to a lot of people. I know someone who is currently pregnant and lives in a state that has completely banned abortion and did not realize until someone else told her, you know, if you have a pregnancy complication, you cannot get the care you're going to need in your state should it be serious and require an abortion. And she like didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, it's so, uh, it's so sad. It's so bad. I think this will be a a good segue into our next topic on purity culture. Yes, there's really no way to talk about abortion restrictions without touching on that. <laughs> exactly. First, what is purity culture, and who is most, would you say, at least in the United States, 
affected by it and kind of raised with the loudest voices of purity culture. So when I am asked for the definition, I usually rely on a definition written by Linda K. Klein. And Linda is the author of a book called Pure. And it's, I think the kind of subtitle of Pure is how the evangelical church harmed a generation of young women. And her definition is that it is a cross-cultural, rigid system of gender and sexuality control. And that it is not just Christianity, but you can see facets of it in other major world religions. So it's an old, old idea. But what happened in America, especially in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, is purity culture became this really intense movement that also came with an industry, a capitalist project where people were given purity rings and purity pledges and purity balls and there were purity programs. And the whole idea was to enact a very rigid system of control around gender and sexuality. And most of the burden of this system of control fell on young women. And so there are some pretty big major tenets of what like American evangelical purity culture taught and still teaches. One of them is that virginity is first of all, that it exists, that it's something to be held onto and prized and essentially worshipped and kept until you're married in a heterosexual marriage, that you should not even have like sexual thoughts, feelings until you're married, that your body belongs to God and your future husband, and that the only kind of acceptable sexual activity happens within the confines of a heterosexual, God-sanctioned marriage. That's the gist of it. That's the Cliff's Notes. And I love that you mentioned that in the it was 80s, 90s, it was a capitalistic pursuit, because it makes me think of what you said a little bit earlier, how abortion wasn't even a political issue until, I think you said, late 1800s. I see some parallels, some, some suspicious parallels. <laughs> suspicious parallels in both cases have to do with men deciding to gain control of something. And in the first instance, what was happening is that physicians, doctors, they started regulating abortion because they were trying to push like lay practitioners, midwives, herbalists out of the field. And they were doing so by like starting medical associations and creating regulations about abortion. So the first kind of anti-abortion laws had nothing to do with the sanctity of life or supposed like rights of a fetus or anything about that. It was just like doctors wanted to corner the market on taking care of pregnant women. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because at the time, the only people who were like traditionally educated doctors were white men. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so a lot of the lay practitioners were midwives, healers, black and indigenous women, immigrant women, all those folks that they didn't want to, you know, be, I guess, in their thoughts, like messing around in this work. Mm. So that was the male doctors of the day were like, we're going to take control of this. And they did. And then somewhat related is then in the 
in the United States, evangelicals did not consider abortion to be one of their issues. They thought abortion was a Catholic issue. And up until even 1980, when American evangelicals got together for like national meetings, they still thought that abortion was not so much their business, that it was a Catholic issue. And they did not say that life began at conception until the religious right Jerry Falwell was a big player in this movement, Jerry Falwell Sr. Some of your listeners might know this, but for those who don't, I'm like, stay with me here as I explain this. So in the late 1970s, civil rights legislation was coming, and it meant that churches would have to desegregate. They would have to desegregate their schools, their private Christian schools, and they didn't want to do that. And they're like, so how can we get people to vote out President Jimmy Carter? Because President Jimmy Carter is going to make us desegregate. They decided at a meeting in 1979 to make abortion their pet issue because they thought if we can get people really riled up about abortion, we can make it a voting issue and we can gain political power by getting people to decide that abortion is really, really bad and they will vote against candidates that support any kind of reproductive freedom. That was much more palatable than saying we want free will and free reign to discriminate against Black Americans. And so that's what they did. The making of abortion as a big evangelical issue was a politically motivated intentional master plan. And another example of how literally almost everything relates back to racism. Yeah, that too. And then, of course, purity culture wasn't far behind because not long after they decided abortion was going to be their pet issue, we had the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, Mm -hmm. which gave I mean, a lot of hysteria around sexuality, around gay male sexuality. And so like what we now think of as like the purity movement that started, it was kind of on the heels of all of that. One thing that I'm sure a lot of people have faced in maybe even their own thought process, but just hearing from others is like, what's so bad about abstinence? And isn't it safer to just scare people a little bit so that they don't have sex. At least my Russian family is all about scaring children a little bit so they don't do bad things. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering, like, do you know of any, I don't know if they're cited research or statistics or just in general trends about purity culture versus like how sexual, I guess, people are or like what are the consequences of purity culture? Let me put it simply. Yeah. Well, first of all, there is research. There is so much research that abstinence-only education doesn't work. Now, I want to be clear that like abstinence, there's nothing wrong with abstinence. Choosing to abstain from sexual activity is a perfectly wonderful choice, but I believe it is a choice that should be freely made, not something that you were given as your only option, because then what happens if people want to have sex is that they don't have any information. And abstinence-only education is always included with a ton of shame and very often a lot of misinformation. 
So abstinence only lessons, and some of you listening have probably experienced this, is like they will compare young women to chewed up gum or compare young women to water that everyone has spit in and say like, well, if you have sex before marriage, you are this chewed up gum and who is going to want you? So like that kind of education isn't effective and it increases our shame and like self-loathing and inability to make healthy decisions about sexuality that are like grounded in like security and education and in like positive intentions. There is a ton of research about how abstinence-only education doesn't work. Despite these studies, the government has continued to fund it. It was getting a lot of funding in the George W. Bush era, and then they began to decrease that funding a bit during the Obama era. The funding went back up under Trump, and it's like nobody cares about the science. (laughs) which we've seen happen around other issues lately, pandemic included. But the science is out there. There are other countries that have very good comprehensive sex education, meaning teaching young people not just not to have sex, but teaching them about decision-making and relationship skills and boundaries and health and condoms. The countries that do that have much lower rates of teen pregnancy, much lower rates of unintended consequences like STIs or abortion. And we see that difference in countries like Germany, the Netherlands, France, for example. And it's like, despite all the evidence, American culture is very, very, very sex negative, very squeamish about sex, and frankly, like very puritanical. And that does not result in positive sexual health outcomes at all. In your work with adult clients and perhaps the students in your purity culture dropout program, what effects have you seen on them, the people who are like working through their history with purity culture as adults? I could list dozens of things, and I'm just going to try to come up with the ones that are at the top of my head, but absolute misinformation or no information about their own bodies and how their bodies work. A lot of stigmatizing beliefs about desire and sexuality, especially in gendered ways, like thinking that women shouldn't want sex and that men always do. And if your husband isn't in the mood, something's wrong with you. There are ramifications to teaching women that they must always be sexually available to their husbands. And that they don't get to consent because, you know, if you're married, you're just supposed to meet your husband's needs. A lot of people have trouble getting that belief out of their head. Sometimes there are physical manifestations of purity culture teachings, including pain with penetration, pain with intercourse, sometimes diagnosable as vaginismus or other pelvic floor dysfunctions, inability to experience orgasm, inability to know how to talk to a partner about sex. Sometimes people will completely ignore sexual health issues that they're having, maybe problems with their vulva, vagina, or internal reproductive stuff because it's just easier to ignore it and pretend it's not there. I've worked with folks who were so afraid to 
basically even like look at their own vulva in a mirror, thought that like their own vagina and vulva were disgusting. And if we are raised with that attitude about our bodies, that's not going to bode well for experiencing pleasure. People, we kind of touched on this earlier when it comes to educating young people, but parents then who were like, well, I was raised in purity culture and now I have a kid and I don't know how to talk to them about sex. I just know that I don't want them to have the experience that I did. So a lot of, you know, shame can get stirred up with adults when their kids start asking questions about sex or experiencing certain things developmentally. Mm. Yeah. And I've seen so much of that in myself and my friends and parents and family and everywhere. Oh my God, it's everywhere. Yeah. I will say that like something I hear often is people were like, I think I'm just broken. I think that maybe I'm just not meant to enjoy sex or I'm not meant to have sex or maybe I'm asexual. And asexual is a perfectly valid identity. But what I'm usually seeing is folks who actually aren't asexual, but have had their development around sexuality so stunted by these teachings that are nothing but shame, fear, and misinformation. Yeah. You have a whole well-developed program, the Purity Culture Dropout Program, where people can begin to undo a lot of these layers. But if there was one thing that you could put on a billboard or a brain tattoo into our listeners' minds right now, those who are, whether or not they're deep in purity culture or just have felt the ripple effects of it, because it is all around us, it's kind of like it's very much like diet culture. Most people have experienced it (laughs) to some extent and sexism and obviously racism. It's not even a question. Like so many of these social constructs, forces, what would you want people to really take away or where can they just start? I guess they're like, what's something they can hold on to? So three main things come to mind. One is that it is never too late to deconstruct ideas around sexual purity. I don't care, you know, if you're 20, 40, 60, older, you will be a sexual being until you die. And it's never too late. You're not past your prime. You can still find enjoyment in your sexuality. I actually had a woman, I believe in her 70s, buy my sexual values workbook one time. She's somebody who got out of a cult in her elder years. And I was so happy to know that she still wanted to think about her sexual values. So that'd be the number one thing is that it's never too late. Number two is we have to learn to think of our bodies as not inherently bad and evil. They're just bodies. Everyone has one. We are born into them. There's no reason to think of them as inherently bad and sinful and awful. It is the most human thing in the world to have sexual desire, to want sexual pleasure, to have sexual thoughts and fantasies, to seek physical closeness with other people. It's not a sign of us being bad or sinful or somehow broken. It's just, it's deeply human. And there are other cultures that that treats sexuality as just a completely normal part of life, which I believe it is. And the third thing is is that you deserve to feel pleasure for no other reason other than that you just do. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be 
a good little girl. You don't have to meet certain expectations. We're alive in these bodies that are capable of feeling pleasure. And I think that giving yourself pleasure, allowing yourself to experience pleasure is one of the most like basic, fundamental, and joyful parts of being human. So mm-hmm. those are the top three. I love all of those. I was muted, but the only thing I would add is you don't have to be a good little girl unless you're into that. Wink, wink. As <laughs> soon <laughs> as I said it, I was like, that sounded kinky. There's probably someone out there that's like, oh, I like that. And please live with Erica, life. I thought you meant to say it like that. I was like, oh, she knows. I was like, that a was little- kinky. There's, I mean, good, if, if that just aroused a little peak of curiosity in your mind. A little Freudian slip. I love it. <laughs> um, this has been so wonderful, Erica. Thank you so much for just leaving us on an empowering, positive note and sharing your wisdom with us and removing so much of the stigma, which is what I think a lot of the work is about. It's like, we just have to talk about it. We just have to think differently about it. We have to talk about it to think differently about it. Yeah. Being silent about purity culture and about maybe the post-purity culture shame you experience just continues to add to the shame. Some of the most powerful work happens when like, you say this to a friend for the first time or to a therapist for the first time, or even to me anonymously in my DMs for the first time. There's no reason to keep it inside. It's like Brene Brown will tell you, (laughs) shame thrives in secrecy. So have conversations about it and about sexuality in general. Mm, I love that. You have such a comforting presence about you. And I'm sure our listeners would love to know where we can find you and work with you, explore your program some more all the things. Sure. So my main hub where I'm very active and I very much engage with folks is on Instagram. You can find me at ericasmith.sex.ed. And I also have a website, puritycultureDropout.com. And at the website, you can find out how to work with me, which might be just a one-on-one session or doing the Purity Culture Dropout program. I also run support groups specifically for queer people who are raised in purity culture. I do those a few times a year. And I have webinars that I do live and then sell the recordings on my site. So I've done webinars on how to have your first sexual experience and communication during sex and kind of discovering you are LGBTQ after being raised in purity culture. There's a few others as well and a sexual values workbook. So I would be happy to support folks in any way that I can. I really love to kind of handhold people through this stuff because it's really scary and nobody else teaches you how to do it. So even your voice sounds like a a (laughs) handholding. Thank you. Yeah, Thank it's you. just so needed. I just want to add a link, everything in the description. And I just want to invite people to go to the description to visit specifically your Instagram. I'm really sorry to say this, but your account doesn't come up unless I type in the whole thing. So it's oh, I Erica. I know. <laughs> and I think people need to know so they don't miss it. EricaSmith.sex.ed. Yes. So thank you so much, Erica. It's been a pleasure, pun intended. Yes. <laughs> you too, Mary. Thank you. 
One last thing before we farewell, if you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify, depending on where you're listening. Your feedback helps the podcast grow, and as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words just mean the absolute world to me. Just search the show on Apple, scroll all the way down to where you'll see a place to leave a review. And if you're listening on Spotify, on the show's homepage, you'll see like a star. And when you click on that star, it'll let you send in your reading. Thank you so much for helping me spread the gift of self-love. And speaking of the gift of self-love, make sure you pick up my book, which is available in stores and online worldwide. Just go to maryscupoftea.com slash book, and you'll find all the links to order the gift of self-love. I love you all so much, and I will talk to you next time. Bye!